Hello everybody and Kia Ora. Today we'll be talking about the different types of pedestrian crossing controls, the behavioural responses of both drivers and people crossing, and analysing the road safety implications related to unsignalised crossings. We have more than 1300 people registered for today's webinar. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Erin Gibson. I'm the Communications Officer at Osroads. I'll be moderating today's session together with Sam Bolton. Sam Bolton is the Executive Officer at Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand. Sam will moderate the Q&A portion at the end of this webinar. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Australia is based in Sydney, and so today I am on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to Elders past, present and emerging, and their deep and ongoing connection to the land. This webinar is being facilitated by Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand, in conjunction with Austroads and the Department of Transport and Main Roads Queensland. Just a little bit about Austroads. We are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. Before we begin, we'll just touch on a bit of housekeeping. Our presenter will speak for 40 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A session for 15. The slides can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you'll find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, include the number of that slide in your message as it help give, helps give us some context to your question and helps us to be able to answer it as best as we can. Also, please let us know if you have any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. Closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration will usually help. This session is being recorded and we'll let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also find Osroads in your podcast app. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenter for today, Mark McDonald. Mark is Principal Technologist, Bicycles, Pedestrians and Motorcycles at the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads. Sam Bolton will be joining us at the end for the Q&A portion. Over to you, Mark. Welcome, my name's Mark McDonald. Today I'll be talking about zebras and wombats, back-checking the false sense of security. I am a road designer. I've had about 26 years of experience across various aspects of design. Uh, I am, have specialised in active transport for the last 14 years. I'm not a registered professional engineer of Queensland, or RPQ, and this presentation does not form engineering advice. All the references that I cite are included at the, the back of the webinar. Uh, they are all discoverable, so you can read them and form your own judgment. This is a re-recording of the live webinar. We had some sound issues with the, the live webinar. Uh, so I've taken the opportunity to integrate uh, some of the points raised in the Q&A. So hopefully there's a few, few clarifications that have occurred along the way. So uh, this recording is not a, an exact word-for-word -word replica of the live presentation, but hopefully forms a more complete whole. Uh, before proceeding, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on where we meet today. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders, both past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to extend that respect to Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people and people 
of First Nations attending today. I will now play a video uh, detailing the activities of Transport Main Roads Queensland. So in our efforts to create a single integrated transport network accessible to everyone, uh, we've been looking a lot at crossings as a, a way to improve safety and accessibility, uh, reducing severance of active transport routes. Uh, often false sense of security comes up as a concern that uh, doing a priority crossing uh, may have unintended consequences and you know, is often seen as a reason to not install priority crossings. Um, so false sense of security before I go on is could be defined as the belief that a situation is safer than it actually is. Uh, so as part of uh, the work that we've been doing uh, and this presentation in itself uh, is really seeking to look at the information available on this uh, concept of false sense of security, look at both sides of the argument and uh, look into the foundations of the claim. So in this uh, presentation, I'm only going to focus on uh, the behaviour at dis different crossing treatments. Um, I'm not going to cover the education or communication aspects that may influence the particular belief uh, or beliefs or stated beliefs. Uh, I'm also going to uh, spend time mainly on the safety aspects of this, not the uh, benefits of why cycling and walking matter. Uh, these benefits are defined in the Queensland Walking Strategy and the Queensland Cycling Strategy, uh, which do a pretty good job of describing the, the positive benefits of these modes of travel to society and individuals. Uh, so yeah, primarily safety, I'm going to look in begin with the safe system, looking at the, uh, the energy aspects and reliability, and then looking more into the evidence around actual crash performance and the behavioral um, side of evidence. A couple more definitions about uh, treatments before I proceed. Uh, in Australia, zebra is a shorthand term for a marked pedestrian crossing. Uh, this is defined under the road rules uh, requiring regulatory signs of the walking leg signs and the white pavement stripes across the road so that's shown on the image on the left the image on the right shows a wombat which is a shorthand term again for a marked pedestrian crossing on a platform there are other versions of uh, raised priority crossing uh, so the Regulatory uh, control requirement can uh, either be through the walking legs and zebra marking sign or uh, give way signs and lines uh, and other regulatory devices such as a shared zone marking. So to begin on safe system, um, this gets called up through the National Australian National Road Safety Strategy and in Queensland we've got a Queensland Road Safety Strategy uh, that has a vision of zero deaths and serious injuries by 2050. And that challenges us to just think differently on how, how can we achieve that, um, particularly where we've got uh, people walking or riding bikes in the, in the transport network. Um, there's many actors in the safe system. Uh, the system is typically uh, 
turned into a diagram like the target board seen on the, the right hand side of this slide um, there are it's it's a fairly complex if you delve into the actors and connections across um, these areas uh, but uh, yeah typically there's the four pillars of safe roads and roadsides safe speeds safe road users and safe vehicles uh, and like I said there's many actors influencing how, how those um, interrelate and uh, how that works towards uh, limiting crash forces to be within human tolerance uh, levels uh, so design can work on all of these areas um, and obviously there's other ways we can influence um, behavior on the road network um, but as designers uh, we really need to think about how how we can um, you know, touch on all of these to reduce human tolerance oh sorry reduce crash forces to within human tolerance limits so this presentation will sort of look at these um, aspects of safe system so moving on so the safe system dartboard uh, diagram is is a convenient way to sum up the whole safe system approach in in many ways but moving down into a more practical application sometimes it, it helps to look at uh, uh, risks I guess in a more linear type of way um, so the you know risks propagating towards uh, being realized and what barriers have we got in place so uh, James Reason proposes you know, Swiss cheese conceptual model of safety um, that there are often many uh, contributing factors to a crash or a series of uh, barriers that have been breached or uh, on, on the way to that crash being realized um, and you know, these barriers may be uh, choices that have occurred um, along the way either by the uh, humans at the, the end of the chain or the humans involved in designing the, the environment where the crash occurred so uh, in, in general uh, the, the more barriers we can put in place and the stronger the barriers we have in place uh, the more likely you know, we can prevent crashes or reduce the severity of a crash so the threat barrier diagram or sometimes called a bow tie model is a slightly more formal way of uh, presenting the Swiss cheese model uh, it's an event based diagram it doesn't have a great analytic um, uh, doesn't assist in the an analytics of a crash it's more of a stock take of barriers uh, this is set up uh, in this diagram showing a, a generic pedestrian crossing a road uh, so everything at the left hand side of the diagram is the it's sort of a time series of threat scenario occurring a number of barriers that are hoping to uh, either prevent uh, that threat scenario from actually making it to be a crash or if a crash occurs uh, transitioning the energy to a, a, a hopefully a lower kinetic energy state uh, obviously we're aiming to push uh, if a crash does occur towards a minor or less lesser injury consequence uh, in terms of uh, pedestrian crossings uh, so the non-priority crossings here are shown as dark lines 
these exist in both the non-priority and mark crossing states. Um, so there are inherent, I guess, controls in the road design generally. Uh, but once we mark crossings, more obviously more uh, barriers come into play. Uh, the pedestrian needs to judge uh, when it's safe to enter the road or cross the road in, in both scenarios. This is sort of shown as a uh, double coloured line. Um, and obviously pedestrian crash avoidance uh, could also occur um, at, uh, prior to the crash occurring. Uh, this is shown as a dashed line because it may not actually be a fully effective barrier. Um, a pedestrian may jump out of the path of one conflicting vehicle into another. Uh, after a crash has occurred, obviously there's other features that uh, the vehicle design features or uh, pedestrian vulnerability that uh, may come into play. Uh, so when looking at uh, crash history or crash reports, you know, uh, sometimes the vulnerability of pedestrian could actually be flavoring uh, what we're seeing in, in the information. Uh, and in the pre-crash uh, controls, uh, they're, they're not only just physical controls, but they are actually uh, controls of the behavior. Um, so things like onus of responsibility, uh, we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but you know, uh, about reliability and you know, where, where do we, how do we get the most reliability out of these barriers? Um, So behavior of people and systems themselves can be pretty complex, complex when you start to delve in a bit deeper. Uh, if you become interested in this area, uh, the work by Paul Salmon and Gemma Reed is uh, pretty interesting to, to get an understanding and you know, where, where we can leverage uh, actors uh, and things in the safe system to uh, get better, better safety outcomes. Uh, so I guess some of the other issues in terms of system design is that often we're dealing with incomplete information. Uh, as good as crash data is, often you know, we need to be careful that we're seeing the full picture. Uh, there are examples of pedestrian crashes being recorded, but it wasn't clear in the data that it was actually people emerging from on-street parking instead of just accessing the road from on-street. Uh, so again, uh, Garbage in, garbage out. We we need to be pretty clear of, of what uh, what we're uh, designing for. Um, the the images shown here are from some work by Gemma Reed, looking at uh, a crossing activity task as imagined by designers, and then the crossing activity task as done by the users. Uh, it's pretty clear that these these two networks uh, are quite different of, of the things that uh, users are doing or concerned about in terms of crossing. Uh, and these differences you know, could play out in terms of different behaviors uh, being enacted on the network, uh, different to what a designer may have imagined. Uh, this may be that you know, users have different design goals to the the designers in, in some ways, uh, but in terms of trying to design a system accessible to, to everyone, uh, we really need to be thinking about how, how do we design a system that 
lines these goals. So we could be doing uh, this by you know, getting more lived experience as designers or doing training courses that provide that uh, or participating or um, creating the co-design activities, uh, even traffic observational studies, observing actual behavior on the network uh, could be a high quality data set to be dealing with uh, to understand how, how people are using the system. Uh, so in design, um, a, a good quote is that all models are wrong and some models are useful. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of uh, models out there that will, will tell you that uh, if you do one thing, this will be the consequence. But often in reality, there are a number of uh, loop feedback loops or emergent behaviors uh, that, that can arise out of doing things. And often it isn't a, a one change creates a, a linear effect. Uh, so the counterpoint uh, is that uh, used by Jeanette Sadek Khan is that the best model is reality. Uh, so in many ways, it's yeah, while it's good to do a lot of background um, analysis about you know if this is the right approach, uh, the, the quicker, lighter, cheaper approach, uh, you know, obviously does a fair bit of work to put out safe designs, but also to put them out and make them adaptable and observe whether they actually are achieving the design intent. Um, so th this is a pretty interesting way of uh, implementing projects and it could be used in a crossing application. So if you know, even after this presentation, if you're still concerned about unintended consequences of crossings, uh, you know, maybe this approach could be a way to test the waters. Uh, so the uh, diagram on the right here is pretty much those complex diagrams turned into an image. Um, again, user experience may be quite different uh, to design intent. So in design, it's uh, still pretty common to hear uh, people basically making claims that you know, we can't design for lack of common sense or maybe a harder way to say that. Uh, you know, statements like everything would be okay if everyone just followed the rules. Uh, and why aren't people doing what we intended? Uh, so the, the work by Paul Salmon and Sidney Decker is kind of interesting that it sort of flips this around from uh, focusing on the, the errors made at, by humans at the end of the, the, the chain of cascading errors, uh, but to look at the whole system itself. Um, if you're focused on the, the, the bad apples, as they call them, at the, at the end of the chain, uh, in, in many ways, you're kind of saying, wow, our system's perfect. Uh, the, and it's the, the people who are failing at the end are, are the ones to blame. Uh, so yeah, Sydney's Deckers has some you know, interesting quotes here about hindsight um, and oversimplification. Uh, it's worthwhile reading uh, to get a better understanding of safe system. Uh, Decker's probably key quote here is that human error is a symptom of a deeper trouble, not the cause. So at the heart of the safe system, we've got human tolerance to crash forces. Um, so at, at this point, it's probably worthwhile considering who has control of those crash forces. 
Um, so this graph charts kinetic energy. Um, it's a fairly well-known formula. Um, uh, so it's yeah pretty apparent that even low-speed vehicles have you know, orders of magnitude more kinetic energy than a, a pedestrian or even a bicycle rider, at, uh, even a, a faster bicycle rider. Uh, so in terms of who has the control of those crash forces, you know, um, or the alertness, being an alert pedestrian, um, does that really change the kinetic energy of, of a scenario if something goes wrong? Um, so it's pretty clear that a, an alert pedestrian uh, doesn't really change much, but an alert driver going, say, for example, a full drive at 40 kilometres an hour, uh, reducing to a full drive at 20 kilometres an hour, we're looking at a substantial reduction in kinetic energy and so much the same for a light vehicle, small car. So these are the types of crash uh, tolerance forces that uh, Austroads coined as uh, critical impact speeds for pedestrians. Um, so obviously there aren't many locations on the road network that have speed limits of that, that 20 kilometers an hour. Um, well, that would be wonderful, um, you know, even if we can get within that reach, um, you know, particularly at crossing points is, you know, how do, how do we design, how do we achieve that through design um, to achieve these kinds of uh, speeds, you know, where we know that people will cross. So uh, braking, uh, driver braking prior to a crash with a pedestrian, uh, the likelihood of this happening was actually researched by McLean uh, as part of uh, some work in South Australia uh, at the Centre of Automotive Safety Research. Uh, they do crash scene investigations and post-crash interviews, so they generate some pretty um, quality data uh, in these studies. Uh, this, this study was looking at the pedestrian safety effects of the default 50 kilometre hour speed limit in South Australia. Uh, so uh, the findings were part of the findings out of this by McLean with the uh, in 118 cases that could be analyzed that they found that 45% of those cases there was no evasive uh, action attempted by the, the driver prior to the collision, no braking. Uh, and the, they found that this was usually because the pedestrian wasn't seen at all or the driver didn't realize there was a danger of a collision. So in effect, this means that the impact speed uh, was uh, equal to the traveling speed of the vehicle. Um, so this kind of speaks to the, I guess, the default speeds or the expected speeds that uh, vehicles would be traveling uh, in proximity to a pedestrian crossing desire line, whether it's marked or unmarked. And uh, in terms of design, you know, it's certainly raises some questions about how, how do we achieve those speeds? Is this through alertness or physical design, uh, a mix of both? So how do we alert drivers of pedestrian crossing desire lines? How do we shift expectations from unexpected events through to expected. Uh, the, the graph on the right here, it comes from the Ashto Green Book, the geometric design of highways and streets. And it shows pretty clearly that 
reaction time uh, is always better for expected events. Uh, obviously, the more information we uh, or complexity we throw at, at people, the, the, that also impacts reaction time. Uh, so how we provide this alert, alert, how we design the environment to alert drivers is important in some ways. Uh, uh, so we can do this implicitly uh, through the actual geometric um, cues in, in the actual street design. Uh, for example, driveways, uh, you know, showing the path continuing across the driveway or explicitly uh, through signs and pavement markings. Uh, obviously that can tend to make a, an environment busier. Bacillus uh, and Jalaski uh, and the Berg Alvagren uh, uh, et al, I think that is, um, uh, reports uh, did look at a variety of pavement markings and, and how they may uh, behave, behave or how they may act on people. Um, there, there's some, uh, generally the pavement markings can modify behavior. Um, there is some sort of discussion about whether uh, some of these things might even be acting at a more subconscious level. Um, so really this is about inducing the positive behavioral feedback loops. So the, moving on to the safe road users element of the uh, safe system, uh, often that is seen as an uh, education piece, but there are also uh, elements about uh, how we design the system in terms of responsibilities. Uh, so in terms of the, the road users uh, of interest in a crossing scenario, uh, you know, we've got drivers and people walking or riding. Uh, typically the driver is a much more known quantity. They're tested, licensed, uh, over 16, vision tested, hopefully a blood alcohol less than 0.05. And more and more we're seeing that their uh, capabilities are being enhanced by uh, technologies such as autonomous emergency braking. Uh, on the other hand, we've got people walking or riding bikes. Uh, in, in many cases, these people, uh, we have far less uh, understanding or certainty about their capabilities. Uh, they may be uh, children or they may be adult controlling multiple children or a person with a, some form of uh, impairment. Um, there's a saying that we're all only temporarily able we, we start out less able, where some of us have an able middle, and with aging, uh, it's almost inevitable that our uh, abilities uh, deteriorate as we age. Uh, so really in terms of road design, you know, how do we design the system to cater for all ages and abilities? Uh, and if, you know, in that respect, where would you place onus of responsibility for a safety critical task if these were your two groups to choose from? So if we place onus for responsibility onto drivers, will they give way? Um, there are a couple of studies that have looked at that, this in a couple of different ways. So Den Hertog's work 
<clears throat> looked at uh, crossing locations uh, where drivers were required to give way to pedestrians uh, in Brisbane. So they uh, didn't have looked at uh, five sites, uh, four unmarked locations and one marked location, which is shown here on the right. I'll, I'll talk about the unmarked locations in the next couple of slides. Uh, so in this uh, marked location, uh, it's a raised shared zone. Um, there are a few of these around Queensland. Um, they've been used in uh, re replacement for a, a wombat type treatment. Uh, there are other ways we can uh, define priorities, such as the give wave marking on top of a, a raised platform also, or the continuous footpath treatment that's been used in other jurisdictions uh, and in uh, Queensland too. Uh, in this scenario, uh, yeah, this, the priority is defined by the shared zone uh, signage here. Uh, the 20 kilometre hour speed limit is a little bit unusual. Typically that would be a, a 10 uh, under the MUTCD. Uh, so this uh, performed the site performed better than the unmarked locations. 41% uh, of drivers gave way to pedestrians as required under the road rules, uh, which still isn't amazing, but it's certainly better than the 8% at the unmarked. That was an average of 8%. Uh, Hatfield looked at this as in a different way, uh, uh, looking at uh, surveying uh, drivers and their understanding about priority. Uh, in this case, most uh, Drivers understood the priority rule at mark crossings, the explicitness of that, that treatment, uh, but less people understood priority around an unmarked um, scenario. So in this case, uh, unmarked in Hatfield's study did include scenarios where uh, there would be uh, no road rules requirement to give way. Um, so refuges, um, just a straight, um, blank uh, untreated road uh, and also a, uh, the continuous footpath type, type treatment. So there was a, a little bit less understanding about, about that um, treatment by drivers. So in, in many ways, you know, the markings can uh, improve understanding compliance, it, it appears. So this table shows uh, the number of pedestrians and drivers and interactions that were observed during the Den Hertog study. Um, in the unmarked crossing intersections, uh, there was a, uh, on average a fairly even split of pedestrians and drivers. Uh, and looking at the marked uh, crossing shared zone uh, during the study period, uh, there were actually more pedestrians observed than drivers. So these are the unmarked sites uh, where drivers are required to give way to pedestrians in the Den Hertog study. Uh, so the, all these uh, percentages shown on the images uh, are basically where the 8%, the average of 8% is the average of all of these. I can see that the range varies from about a 2% yield rate to about a 17% yield rate. Um, so looking at Warner Street and Wickham Street on the top left, uh, 
So drivers turning off Wickham Street into Warner Street, there is a road rules requirement there to give way. Uh, coming out of Warner Street, uh, the, the paper did make some, uh, it did include this, even though technically uh, often it isn't seen. There's no explicit road rule about drivers exiting a street needing to give way. Uh, but they uh, thought that potentially having the stop bar there might uh, start to influence that there's actually a requirement of drivers needing to give way to anything on the other side of that line, which would in, in this case include pedestrians crossing. Uh, the 10% is not hugely higher than um, the 7%, but it's interesting in this kind of um, uh, uh, balance that it's performing about the same as the actual road rules requirement. Uh, Melbourne Street Cultural Centre is a, is a high activity area for pedestrians. Uh, the Cultural Centre has a huge uh, area of activity. Uh, South Bank, uh, likewise, is a recreational centre for inner city Brisbane. This is a busway over here. Uh, this footpath on the top going over is a major uh, river crossing for pedestrians, uh, crossing to the centre of the central business district, but still only getting a 7% yield rate uh, for drivers giving away to pedestrians in this. This is probably an interesting one to think about uh, how is the road geometric design servicing this, uh, the supporting the road rule. Um, here that uh, might not be fully apparent, but that's a fully fenced corner and the sweeping nature of the corner, you know, might be promoting speeds that um, maybe aren't particularly helpful for the crossing scenario. Uh, Yann Street Commercial Road um, is a slip lane and it has the poorest uh, yield rate out of all of the four sites. Um, so this is probably a, a time to bring up the discrimination claim that uh, TMR uh, dealt with a few years ago. Um, basically the basis of the discrimination claim was that a person uh, an able-bodied person can deal with this, potentially deal with this 2% yield rate, but a person with a vision impairment is uh, effectively uh, denied access to cross the road. So a person with vision impairment uh, can uh, uh, really struggle to determine an approaching vehicle and what the intent of that vehicle is. Are they going through or are they turning left? Um, it's really hard to tell whether they're, which, which lane this approaching vehicle is. So in many ways, uh, the person with the vision impairment uh, determining whether it's safe to step out to trigger the road rules requirement uh, effectively needs to wait for pretty much no traffic on Ann Street, which is a four lane, uh, 60 kilometer hour posted road. Uh, so quite a uh, uh, challenging scenario to step out. So uh, as part of that, the discrimination claim dealing with that. Uh, TMR changed the rules around how we uh, mark crossings on slip lanes. Uh, so uh, yeah, we're a lot more open to that being marked now uh, it, from a dis disability access perspective. Um, the driver compliance rate in this, um, once we've marked it, uh, is actually much more accessible. Uh, Chestnut Street Bay Terrace uh, has the highest of all the, the yield rates, even though it's not uh, amazing. Um, 
but it probably has a bit of a cue again about um, driver speeds on approach to uh, this intersection and how that may benefit pedestrians. So again, uh, a busy road with many potentially uh, driver to vehicle to vehicle conflicts. Uh, so drivers potentially approaching this road may be going a lot slower than you may be seeing at those large sweeping bends. Um, so maybe that's um, relevant to pedestrian crossing yield rate. So looking at uh, yield rates, Bajulis uh, and Julaski found that uh, driver yield rate for pedestrians uh, improves at lower speed, and it's a fairly clear relationship. Uh, the other uh, benefit here is, a, I guess, a double benefit with the severity probability curves, and there's always debate about this curve. It does shift depending on the, the type of vehicle and the fragility of the pedestrian. But in, in general, it's always a uh, lower probability at lower speed, and uh, that's also working well with the yield rate. Hyden found a similar result with the driver yield rate improving at lower speeds for pedestrians and uh, also for people riding bicycles. Uh, maybe not as, as good as the pedestrian yield rate, but uh, still there's a relationship that uh, lower speeds uh, improve the yield rate. So this may also be a similar yield rate for uh, PMDs and um, e-scooters. So in terms of design, uh, this probably sends a few signals in terms of design. You know, how, how can we influence lower speeds where we know that people will be crossing? So moving on to crash reduction factors. Uh, so these are studies that have reviewed the safety performance of various treatments. Uh, the table here shows uh, the studies on the left-hand column, uh, the treatments that they assessed. Uh, then there's a series of columns about all crash and all fatal and serious injuries. Uh, they are crash reduction factors also uh, pedestrian crash reduction factor is purely just the pedestrian crash reduction factor. All the all columns are <clears throat> uh, including uh, people driving motor vehicles, um, motorbikes, etc. Uh, pedestrian uh, FSI, fatal and serious injuries, um, is, is uh, that high end of the crashes. Uh, the context covers, I guess, uh, particular aspects of uh, the, the, what the study was looking at and location covers, I guess, uh, the place in the, the world where it looked at and how many sites were included if that information was provided. So uh, looking into the, the studies or the, the beginning with the values first, so the blue values are uh, crash reductions. So they're, uh, the, I guess, change towards the um, positive. So, uh, for example, MacWasher would be a 30% uh, uh, installing a zebra against a hypothetical uh, untreated site. This is saying that the, the sites uh, where this was um, installed, uh, 
there were 30% less crashes overall at that site after the server was um, installed. Uh, so that's a, the, the, a positive aspect of the, um, the crash reduction factor. The negative, negative 88% um, is basically indicating a, a site or a series of um, multi-lane scenarios where in general multi-lanes were found in this Zagir study that there was a 88% increase in uh, crashes at these sites um, at that time and um, uh, with those features uh, feature group Zagir's um, study this is both one study but looking at different aspects of the, the treatments uh, Zagir found that by um, segmenting multi-lane and, and single lane um, scenarios that um, they, they are different animals effectively. Um, so uh, in Australia, the Australian Standard 48, 1742 uh, Part 10 uh, restricts the use of multi-lane zebras. Um, it's a uh, uh, shall not be installed type scenario. Um, there are a number of existing uh, multi-lanes out there um, still, um, legacy uh, treatments. Uh, and in terms of our TMR guidance, uh, I guess the first thing we uh, would recommend looking at is does the site need to be multi-lane to begin with? Um, obviously, uh, looking at multi-lane um, sites is a, is a pretty important uh, aspect of zebra crossings, um, priority crossings, um, and certainly is a, a clear safety challenge to um, to address. Um, and you know, sometimes we could probably also address through um, compliance drives with uh, Road Rule 81 maybe. Uh, but in terms of uh, overall, uh, I guess we're seeing a bit of variation in uh, zebra crossings, even excluding the multi-lane. Um, so Macquasha is sort of looking at, I guess, a more normally compliant uh, zebra scenario under the um, um, Australian MUTCD. Uh, you know, we're seeing um, some fairly strong reductions there, I guess, in the right environment. Um, uh, but generally, yeah, aside from this study by Mike Washer, generally the uh, zebras are seen to have a sort of a, a lowish or a sort of medium, low to medium uh, crash reduction for pedestrians, where the wombats um, tend to have the more substantial crash reduction uh, factors. So improving safety quite heavily and quite solidly for pedestrians. So yes, uh, we've looked at uh, kinetics and breaking the expectations and the likelihood of drivers giving way uh, and the crash reduction factors that some of these treatments can provide, uh, you know, reliability of the people in the system. But uh, I guess why this uh, study or why this uh, webinar exists is the yes part. Um, so there's still um, a concern that uh, by providing pedestrians 
um, with a, a priority treatment that this will somehow be abused. Um, this is framed in a number of different ways. Um, so uh, yeah, the next part of this webinar will look at what, what is the evidence of this? Um, do, do pedestrians actually have a false sense of security or assume priority? So these are the studies that uh, looked at pedestrian behavior at unsignalized crossings. Um, so the structure of table again is set up with the study on the left hand column and moving on to the location of where that study occurred. The key statement column is a direct quote from the actual study. Evidence collected column is a summary of the, uh, the data that contributed to that um, paper. And the evidence support statement column is basically a, uh, a summary uh, comparing the evidence collected um, and the key statement. Basically, uh, did the evidence collected, uh, would that actually help to support that key statement? So the three studies above the, the blue line um, on that table, uh, some of the earlier studies inform the foundation for the claim of pedestrian false sense of security or lack of caution or the premise that pedestrians assume right away. Uh, so let's have a close look at the foundations of this claim through these studies. So Roa in 1961 made the claim about false sense of security. The evidence collected uh, was uh, none. Uh, it was an analytic claim. Um, or analytic paper looking at gap time uh, and stopping distance and walking speed. Uh, there was no behavioral data associated with that um, behavioral claim. Uh, it did provide the basis for the parking uh, restriction distance near crossings. Uh, Herms in 1972 uh, looked at uh, crashes, uh, before and after crash, uh, data uh, at intersections with uh, unmarked, uh, unsignalized pedestrian crossings. Um, uh, they did go out on site and do volume counts to get an idea of um, exposure, uh, but there was no evidence of behavioral data being collected in that study. So the statement about uh, pedestrian attitude and lack of caution, it, isn't, doesn't appear to be supported um, in the evidence collected in that study. Uh, Moses in 1987 in West Australia, um, the key statement there was about the action uh, being taken on the premise that pedestrians assume the right of way at one mark crossings. Uh, but the study doesn't go out to try and prove that. The study is looking at before and after crash counts um, of the multi-lane uh, road, uh, removal of multi-lane crossings on multi-lane roads. Uh, so reflecting back on the crash reduction factors that Zagir found uh, with multi-lane crossings being you know, a, a different animal to single-lane crossings, um, you know, this is fairly uh, similar to what Zagir found. I think Moses found a 86% um, uh, crash increase compared to nothing. Um, so fairly, fairly comparable to the Zagia um, findings. Uh, 
so the important thing about Moses is that it is a referred, frequently referred to in Australia. Um, it appears in Australia Guide to Road Design Part 4, Commentary 12. But what's not clear is that it was a multi-lane road intervention. Um, and the premise of pedestrians assuming right away was uh, more of a, a statement of uh, why they chose to do that, not so much um, proving that um, there, there was a behavioural issue. Uh, going below the, the line um, on that table, um, there's a number of more recent studies um, looking actually collecting pedestrian behaviour. So all of the studies below that line did go out and collect pedestrian and ride, bicycle rider uh, behaviour. Uh, and I, I won't go through every one, but um, the, the key statements, uh, none of them find that there was a uh, apparent uh, false sense of security. Um, there's a sense of uh, deference. So I guess some key words in there are deference, uh, acutely aware of vulnerability, um, no, no evidence about being less vigilant or assertive. So in terms of the, the evidence um, that these studies collected is directly relevant to those key statements. So a much more uh, re reliable uh, set of key statements there. So Zagir's work in the uh, paper I referred to earlier from 2005 uh, also segmented uh, pedestrian behaviours uh, in uh, recorded in the police crash reports um, against I guess marked and unmarked sites. Um, what's sort of interesting with this um, uh, view of the world is that the, often the, the idea about um, pedestrians will dart out if we give them crossings um, seems to be you know, you know, pretty much um, overcome by this. So dart outs are defined, uh, these are terminologies defined in the USA um, uh, pedestrian safety guide countermeasures system in pedbikesafe.org. Um, so basically this definition of Dart out as pedestrian ran or walked or ran into the roadway at an intersection or mid block and was struck by a vehicle. The motorist's view of the pedestrian may have been blocked until an instant before the impact. So these could be potentially people um, coming out, emerging out from around a parked uh, motor vehicle, a non street parked car. Um, again, referring back to the parking restriction distances. Um, a dart out may be that reduced it marked because pedestrians are just more visible inherently or by providing priority they don't feel the need to um, dash um, to survive a gap. So statements like assuming right away or false sense of security could potentially just be a um, hark back to the bad apple um, comment by Decker um, in the Human Factors book. Um, it, we could look at this a different way, the safety two way of saying, well, the error is you know, 
error is occurring. It's a misjudgment of speed, possibly, more than an assumption of a particular behavior. Um, so there's a couple of studies that look at, I guess, pedestrian judgment of um, gap timing or uh, motor vehicle performance. Um, so on the left, the two graphs are from uh, Oxley. Um, they've looked at a simulator uh, study of different uh, people um, as pedestrians trying to cross a, a road with virtual traffic. Um, so they found in terms of safety margin that the young old group um, were largely able to cross um, with a reasonable safety margin. Uh, but when we looked at the old old group, um, a lot of these pe people are uh, dropping down into this negative safety margin zone, which you know, is is of concern. You look, could look at this, you know, in one way, saying, well, they're assuming right away, or they've got a false sense of their own security, um, or it could be they're just misjudging speed. Uh, it could also be that they're uh, these are the group that really need uh, priority crossings to be able to cross the road safely. Uh, having a look at the graph on the right, um, it's a work by um, Sun. It also gets referred to by Elvik. Um, but the, this was a study looking at the uh, perceived uh, stopping distance uh, of a pedestrian, of what a, a driver Sorry, a motor vehicle would be able to stop in time and the actual stopping distance of the motor vehicle. Uh, so ideally it would be following this line, um, but obviously pedestrians' perception of uh, actual stopping distance of a motor vehicle is you know, not following that line. Um, I've, like I said earlier, I've been designing roads for 26 years um, and I've got to say I probably wouldn't be able to judge the stopping distance of a car I'm not driving very well either um, and putting putting this sort of judgment onto pedestrians is you know again probably uh, putting the onus of responsibility into the wrong set of um, hands so in terms of uh, behavioral evidence the foundations of false sense of security are um, appear fairly weak out of the evidence that we've uncovered and the uh, subsequent studies that actually have looked at behavior um, have found evidence that doesn't really support the claim either. Uh, so even if there is a small negative behavioral effect um, it's likely that the pros still outweigh the cons um, provided that crossings are installed according to guidelines um, in lower speed environments um, and that middle of the markings are maintained and lighting is to standard. Uh, there is one exception, however. So the case where there may actually be a false sense of security uh, is where uh, crossing treatments are marked but there's no road rules requirement um, to drivers to give way. So here's a, an example of a, an approach to a roundabout um, and in general road rules, there is no requirement. The road rules are silent on driver requirements to give way at a roundabout or on approach to a, or departure to a roundabout. Uh, 
So uh, Ogden, referring to Zagir, made a statement in, the, in his book uh, um, quite some time ago now, uh, uh, raising this risk, and this has been translated into Austro's Guide to Traffic Management, Part 8, uh, stating that care needs to be taken not to locate flat-top road humps in the vicinity of pedestrian thoroughfares, as pedestrians may incorrectly perceive the presence of such a device as a pedestrian crossing. So uh, Queensland Guide to Traffic Management uh, now does permit uh, pedestrian crossings to be marked in these locations. Uh, wombats, uh, a vertical deflection uh, can also improve uh, the safety of roundabouts. Uh, entering speed of roundabouts is often a, uh, an issue for vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to bicycle or vehicle to motorcycle um, type scenarios. Uh, so there, there may be benefits here, not uh, just for pedestrian safety and accessibility, but for uh, nearby uh, other conflicting movements. Um, we've also done some looking into how this might perform uh, traffic-wise, and gap acceptance can potentially be improved with slower approach speeds. So. Uh, coming into a summary space, um, so we've been looking at uh, fact-checking of, of claims. Um, so there are a number of claims out in, around the road design space that um, have a degree of evidence behind them, and yeah, hopefully uh, a lot of them do. Uh, but if something doesn't seem right, um, yeah, it probably is worthwhile digging a bit deeper, um, view the actual source of the data and understand the study design. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, things that can uh, blur the study, uh, confounding factors um, to understand. Um, there are a number of biases that can influence the study too. Um, and not that that's uh, you know, intentional. Often, it may just be that um, yeah, I, the, the studies by Herms and uh, Moses aren't wrong, but uh, it's how we interpret those uh, statements, um, the hypothetical or the sorry, hypothesis, or hypotheses of the study. Um, you know, it, it may be a valid uh, research avenue to, to explore um, some hypotheses, but uh, those studies certainly didn't prove that, and subsequent studies um, don't appear to have approved that either. Um, Looking at the HERM study, um, I guess the other sort of uh, thing that needs to be considered about how applicable some of these studies are, it's worthwhile delving into the, the some of these studies to actually see what what the what it actually looked at. Um, so HERMS was actually looking at intersections, not mid-block, and a lot of the false sense of security claims have been around mid-block um, facilities. And looking at the actual study, you know, this um, Juniper Street site is actually the photo of it in the Herm study. Um, the recent Google Street View shows it's largely the same as in um, 2011, I think that was, as it was in 1972. Um, and it shows a scenario where you know, the, the crossing is shown between these two white lines. Uh, it appears 
large or multi-lane and there's not much setback um, from the, the intersection itself. Uh, we do zebra markings in a, a longitudinal type line, not the cross work for uh, added longitudinal visibility. And uh, looking at the site, uh, doesn't seem to have similar uh, lighting to the way we would do it in Australia, in a mid-block scenario at least. Uh, so yeah, if you are picking up um, studies, it does pay to um, you get a, a good understanding of how it actually might apply to our situation or the situation being applied wherever you are. So key takeaways, uh, Sydney Decker's quote, uh, human error is a symptom of a deeper trouble, not the cause, is a, a particularly relevant uh, key takeaway. Uh, we really need to uh, look a bit deeper than uh, just the pointing of a crash. Uh, so in terms of the, the aim of the webinar to um, investigate the false sense of security claim, um, no evidence was found that unsignalized priority crossings trigger a, a pedestrian false sense of security. Uh, the false sense of security claim could be interpreted as a statement that uh, security expectations cannot or will not be met. Um, and this is possibly not in line with safety strategy vision zero type targets. Um, but there, there are choices and trade-offs um, in, in how we operate the network. Um, and we probably shouldn't uh, cloak a motor vehicle movement strategy as a, as a safety strategy. Uh, the safety targets definitely challenge us to design in safety and to provide facilities that cater to all ages and abilities. Um, we are all temporarily able, is, is one um, quote. Uh, it's particularly relevant. Um, and you know, also uh, considering the kinetics of the human tolerance to crash forces, so aligning the design with the road rules, uh, the laws of man and the laws of nature um, are pretty important. Uh, so in summary, uh, back to the physical treatments, uh, we're seeing a zebra as a priority treatment, much the same as a give way or stop or set of traffic lights in many ways uh, uh, as a priority control treatment and a wombat as an actual safety treatment, uh, delivering a safer and more accessible system. These are the references I've cited in the webinar. Uh, they should all be discoverable online uh, using your favorite search engines. Uh, TRID or Elicit uh, give access to uh, lots of papers. Uh, obviously Google uh, and even the uh, ARB library, the MGLAY or Natural National Interest Services website provides access to a lot of older papers. Uh, thank you. Uh, I hope this has been useful and you can use it uh, in the future. Uh, stay connected. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much, Mark.
and that was a great presentation and there's a lot of uh, interest and questions coming through. Let me just go back. So the first question is relating to um, slide number 15. Um, just a couple of people uh, would like to, just a bit of explanation about that. Um, about how that diagram is interpreted and what the length, slide, the length of the lines mean and that sort of stuff. Oh, right. Um, yeah, so uh, length of the line was really just to um, make sure the text didn't overlap. Um, so uh, yeah, it's very much like the Haddon matrix. Um, so the before crash, um, during the crash, and after the crash um, aspects. Um, so yeah, the length of the line is just purely graphical to make sure the text doesn't overlap. Um, sorry, what was the other one? Uh, just a general explanation uh, of so, how that yeah, the, interpreted. There are a couple of dashed lines there. Um, the dashed lines were, yeah, sure. Um, so really, um, I don't know if you can see my cursor, but anyway, uh, so on the left, uh, the, the really, uh, the beginning part of the pedestrian crossing road is basically setting up a scenario. That's the event. Um, it's, it's only really looking at a few seconds prior to a crash. So we're not looking at barriers is about um, you know underpasses or cul-de-sacs or um, other land use things. It's basically saying a pedestrian is crossing a road um, and following that thin blue line. Um, you know what are the barriers between um, that that might avoid avoid a crash in that scenario um, prior to the crash occurring. Um, what are the interventions we can make? Um, so I, I have tried to. Put it in more of a time series, so you know, obviously you know, upstream. Hopefully, you know, no one's drinking while they're driving, but um, you know, much more upstream in terms of the driver getting in, getting into a into a vehicle. Um, so hopefully, you know, the, the driver is tested and licensed and not distracted. Um, coming through mid-block speed limit, so that's upstream. You know, um, you know, if we've got a mid-block speed limit of um, 40 or 30 already, you know. Uh, a good flavour. Uh, the likelihood of a, there's again the kinetic energy of a, of a crash flowing through to a fatal or serious injury. Um, and yeah, each each barrier through there is you know potentially you know we have we got warning signs and they, are they visible and are they you know MUTCD compliant and understood. Um, so it's kind of more of a barrier stop take, I guess. Um, not not really something that you can, uh, but it's uh, a way to sort of say what, what um, barriers we got um, in place and are, are they effective. Um, uh, yeah, I hope that's appropriate explanation. Um, sorry, yeah, and there there was one a couple of little lines there about the showing as dash, just to sort of say well. That they may be less of a um, effective barrier than possibly others, um, but really it is just a visual um, aid, I guess. To, um, uh, and 
I, I sort of found it useful. Um, it, uh, there are tools, obviously, use the hidden matrix you could probably do, um, but this for me sort of works as a time series type thing of when something might apply. And um, uh, but yeah, it is very diagrammatic. Great, thanks for that. Uh, next, there's a couple of questions around slide 21, uh, sort of basically along the same lines, uh, looking at whether things like zigzag markings would be more beneficial, uh, changes in uh, uses of uh, signage as opposed to payment mm -hmm. markings, and also just the general busyness and, and how things can be seen and using different things such as cat eyes. Would those sort of different treatments be effective? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good question. Um, so my understanding is the Australian standard doesn't include zigzag markings on approach. Um, and I think that dates back to some work from 1989 from Peter Candy, I think. Um, and that was around signed comprehension and things. And I think at that time, the comprehension of zigzags in particular was not high. Um, so I think it was more from a comprehension aspect. Um, obviously, complexity, um, yeah, is is pretty important. We don't want to overload people, and we probably also want to make sure that they are looking at the you know conflicting user rather than you know, the the actual markings themselves. Um, so yeah, I, I don't have any clear answers on that. Um, it's something that redo comprehension and obviously Candy's work from 1989. Um, I think New South Wales has been doing zigzag markings for a long time um, and possibly other agencies. Um, maybe comprehension's higher. Um, I know in the UK, the zigzag markings have a regulatory um, meaning um, for no overtaking and no parking. Um, and maybe by linking the line marking with the road rule, um, you know, people would would have, um, assist driver knowledge. You know that we do have the road rule around not overtaking a, a, a vehicle stop at a zebra crossing. Um, I believe there are, you know, still enforcement um, pings for, for that, um, but we don't really have a marking to. Sort of help reinforce that to drivers either. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, but yeah, certainly there is a bit of a, a, uh, a concern about the busyness um, of, of how. how sorry, cool. Have Thanks very much. Yeah, I think we have. Um, <laughs> Um, next question is uh, just some clarifications further on. Uh, for slide 30, um, does yes mean that this study concluded that a priority crossing does provide a false sense of security? Um, no, the, the, the statement, it's basically saying that the key statement. Um, so looking at no block, um, the study, um, the study's key statement or in this aspect was that no evidence that pedestrians are less vigilant or more assertive. So the evidence that they collected 
was um, observation of pedestrian behaviour. Um, so really, they've actually the study has um, gathered evidence that supports that statement. Um, so yeah, it's about connecting the the actual data that they collected and the, the intent of the study uh, with the findings. Um, So it really, it's just that, um, you know, uh, yeah, the studies that say no um, didn't have any behavioral data um, to support those statements. There's the ones that um, flagged with yes, um, actually did uh, do behavioral research and found uh, the, uh, well, they, I guess it's the yes that they, um, the, the findings, the statements they're making about behavior are link because they actually did behavioral research. Thank you very much. Um, slide 31, what is a dart out? Yeah, good question. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if that's really well defined. Um, it may be a flag in the, you know, American Police crash reporting system potentially. Uh, I believe that's uh, comes from a police crash reporting data um, uh, that Sigir looked at. Um, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what it's defined as, but it's. Um, I uh, yeah, I think it might just be one of their um, possible issues. I I imagine it's someone um, emerging into the road a bit faster than was it um, thought appropriate, possibly. Great, thank you. Um, slide 32, should speed reduction treatments at road crossing points be prioritised based on land uses such as nursing homes, retirement villages, medical centres, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, sorry, the first part of that, but it should, should priority um, questions be? Yeah, should there areas? be different, yeah, different, um, speed reduction treatments, so. Uh, possibly. Um, yeah, I, I was trying to avoid the whole selection side of things um, in, in this, um, but obviously, yeah, there's a lot of selection um, and prioritization, I guess, about where you, you choose to put priority crossings. Um, and obviously you'd want to, I guess, put them where the highest need is. Um, and it's likely that, uh, yeah, if those people are getting out and around on the network, um, that they not only would potentially struggle to, you know, I guess the work from Oxley is showing that they might struggle to actually cross the road without, um, safely without support. And uh, you know, obviously they might be more vulnerable to um, more extreme injury or high, higher level injuries, or less resilient to, you know, um, kinetic impacts. Cool, thank you. Um, it's just on 11 o'clock, we're just gonna, we've got, as you can imagine, we have a lot of questions. So we're just gonna continue a little bit longer. Um, I understand if people have to go, they, there will be a recording available and also any uns, unanswered questions will um, we'll review later, but we'll keep going for a couple more minutes. Um, 
One is that we often hear um, that if there are lots of zebra or wombat crossings across an area, drivers will stop less, or if there are any zebra and wombat crossings put in that they're not well used, that are not well used, drivers will stop less. Uh, did your research find that risky driver behaviour increased with the quantity or use of zebras and wombats? Um, no, I didn't find any research pointing to that. Um, it may be something to consider. Uh, it's probably more of an issue uh, around signals. So I guess we did try and um, aim, aim for this to be unsignalised. Um, I, I guess one thing that's come up in our training, so when we do training, we also run a quick road rules quiz um, that, um, yeah, even in the design space, there's a lack of awareness of um, the, the road rules in many, many cases. Um, and you know, we still hear people talking about jaywalking and um, different different things without much context about what, what that actually is. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I guess the overall awareness of the rules is, is pretty important. Um, and there are many locations on the network where there already is priority, but somehow um, the, the design is being done in a way that it doesn't really reinforce the rule. Um, many driveways are, I guess, are very much along those lines, um, but you know, side, side streets to you know local area, um, uh, neighbourhood streets. You know, um, so it certainly is along that sort of line where we often might just do like a, a apex race line for vehicles getting into those. Um, yeah, but in terms of the frequency of crossings, um, again, you really need to be looking at, you know, what the uh, attractors, origins and destinations are and, um, you know, again, focusing them on um, uh, crossings where where they will get the most usage, but, you know, if, if you are getting requests, I think we've got a note in the guide to traffic management, if you're getting lots of requests for many crossings in a certain area, um, maybe that is time to, you know, rethink the road. I guess the movement in place sort of um, framework may, you know, provide space to revision some of these roads, potentially if, if you are getting many, many requests in a, in a focused area. Thank you. Uh, is there any evidence that pedestrian behaviour improves at locations being perceived uh, perceived by pedestrians as being more threatening? Uh, yeah, uh, there has been a little, I haven't flagged this in the, the research list, but um, yeah, there, there is evidence that uh, people will avoid certain areas. Um, so often the most risky areas uh, may self-select um, people from, from actually going there. Um, uh, look, some of the research has sort of said, well, um, you know, the pedestrian volumes were similar, uh, not, not too different uh, in the after treatment. Um, but uh, yeah, often I kind of wonder whether that may again be self-selecting out the certain user groups. Um, and yeah, the you know, old uh, elderly people or, you know, we see people driving their kids to school um, instead of allowing the kids to walk or, you know, 
um, people are being effectively confined in their, their houses and being um, uh, accessing services through care care services instead of being able to travel independently. Um, yeah, I guess there's a range of different issues that could happen in that, that sort of respect. Uh, but many of those may not be super apparent in the change in volumes, potentially. And one final question, I think, to finish off. What are your thoughts on raised threshold treatments at low traffic volume, unsignalised intersections, which do not have any zebra crossings? Does the research suggest that this type of treatment without zebra crossings still infer pedestrians that, uh, to pedestrians that they have priority? Um, yeah, I'm just trying to picture what's being spoken about there. I'm, I'm sort of, uh, it sounds a bit like it might be like a, what's called a continuous footpath treatment in New South Wales. So um, yeah, I guess that's sort of like a driveway treatment for a side street effectively, um, if, if that's what I'm thinking. Um, uh, yeah, so I guess the if, if that's if I'm sort of accurate with that, um, yeah, the, there are road rules um, and uh, that apply there, and often the driveways, you know, if they're well formed, um, that they keep the footpath at footpath level and you know show the 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 path being a continuous um, treatment um, instead of looking more like a road. Um, uh, you know, you're sending a lot of the, the queues to, to drivers in that, that scenario to, and obviously getting the, the driveway crossover gradients um, correct too. So a lot of time driveway crossover uh, gradings may be fairly similar to how um, more formal priority side street crossings are, are done. So it sort of is still reasonably aligned um, and yeah, I think it's often how uh, we're, we're treating the driveways. So I see they've also done a bit of work to try and um, highlight uh, that sort of road-related area space across driveways, um, you know, to infer priority a bit more. So again, there may be uh, ways we can uh, support the road rules that apply in that, that area. Um, so whether you do a zebra or a, um, another sort of marking, um, just to highlight that that's a continuous path could also be uh, useful. There have been multiple ways that that's been done. And yeah, I don't have much research on what what would be the, the best or most understandable at this point. Great. Thanks very much for that, Mark. And uh, I think we'll have to wrap it up there as we are now quite a bit over. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, questions that have been unanswered. Um, I will hand over to Erin, who can uh, tell you what's next. 
Awesome. Thanks so much, Sam. And thank you for your questions. We have received a lot, um, as Sam was saying. So we'll do our best to respond to them in writing. And then we will send you a copy of the responses after, as we have received so many. We'll do our best to answer them via themes to try and answer um, the gist of your question, even if there's not a specific response to each question. We do have a variety of sessions coming up. You might be particularly interested in the webinars on the 21st of February and the 28th. On the 21st, we will have the first of two sessions, providing an overview of practical guidance to help expand the use of AI and machine learning in pavement asset management. And the session on the 28th is going to focus on the projects that won the 2022 Osroads Bridge Awards, um, which is very exciting. So for more information and to register, please visit our website. After we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a minute to send us your feedback. It helps us understand what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for our future webinars, as we're always trying to be better. Once again, today's session is being recorded and we'll send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have have a lovely rest of your day. Bye.